Hey, let's talk about religion and politics. That seems safe. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really is one of those things you, you kind of do well to avoid, but at the same time, Garrett rightly knows that it's, it's an area of discipleship, right? We're supposed to obey everything Jesus commands, so it's not like you got your Christianity here, and oh, then there's politics over here. No, if, if you're a Christian, your, your very first political statement is, Jesus is Lord. That's the beginning of your politics, Christian. He's Lord over everything, including your politics and every dimension of it. And so one area of Christian discipleship is working out our politics. And so I, you know, I, I commend your pastor in at least wanting to bring up the topic, whether or not he should be commended for bringing me, decide later. Uh, let, me, let me start then with this question for you. When it comes to how we should politically engage, how much, stepping into the public square, how much should you think about your witness, your witness as a Christian? Okay, so you have two Christians. It's before the 2016 or the 2020 election. One of them says, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump because... He's pro-life. He, he, he's the likeliest path to a political outcome that I think is a good outcome, a, a pro-life justices on the Supreme Court. So that's Christian one. Christian two, meanwhile, is like the, the man is despicable morally, and for us as Christians to tie ourselves to him will undermine our witness. So notice that at least in the conversation, one is seemingly prioritizing a political outcome, the other is seemingly prioritizing witness, but let's, let's give both individuals the benefit of the doubt here and kind of construe them each as, as positively as we can. I, I don't want to get into a conversation about Trump or, or that sort of thing, but just this is an illustration. The, the person voting for Trump not probably would say, yes, of course we should care about our witness, and part of our witness is standing up for righteousness and justice. So, yes, outcomes and witness, and he kind of negotiates it that way. And the other person says, listen, if you align yourself with an immoral man like this and undermine our witness, that's going to hinder your ability to pursue just political outcomes in the long run. Nobody's going to trust us. We're going to lose our credibility. So that person also is, is trying to balance witness and political outcomes, but he's coming to a different calculation about how to do it. But you see the dilemma, Right? And we could use a hundred different illustrations, I trust. But the fundamental question I, I want you to think about that we're beginning with is what does our pursuit of good political outcomes have to do with our witness? What's, what's the relationship between those two things? What's interesting is when society becomes divided, when more and more division occurs, more political fighting occurs, when you feel existentially threatened politically, when, when the nation seems like it's in decline, when Christians get afraid, there's a tendency to push more and more on the political outcome as the most necessary thing to attend to. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And more and more evangelicals, the best I can tell, are arguing just that, that desperate times call for desperate measures, and therefore we need to foreground our interest in political outcomes. Listen to one writer. Now, he's describing Tim Keller and his critique of Tim Keller. I'm not trying to make a conversation about Keller here or defend or support Keller. It's just it's what he's using. He says this, the principle regarding politics, especially for followers of Keller, was that political commentary and activism was an extension of witness, not fundamentally a means for good political outcomes. And he's saying this is bad, right? That witness is always the goal, not good political outcomes. Every decision administering 
this witness tended to defer to whether it resulted in making Christianity attractive to non-believing urbanites. Politics was an extension of cultural apologetics. But this approach to politics as witness, says this author, no longer makes sense in a world that hates us. The solution, according to this individual and many other younger evangelicals, is to put is to engage in a more vigorous political program. Take America back for God, put Jesus' name in the Constitution, put the Apostles' Creed in the Constitution. Again, desperate times call for desperate measures, is the argument being made. And what I appreciate about authors like this is that they are engaged. I think that's a good thing. Walk into many churches today, however, and the pastors will tell you that the old people watching their Fox News or MSNBC are enraged, while the young people increasingly just think it's all hopeless and are disengaged. And what I appreciate about these particular authors is that they are engaged. That's, that's a good thing. But are they right? Uh, should we pick up the sword for Jesus? Should we, in tough times, kind of maybe prioritize political outcomes and just let witness worry about itself? Well, to answer that, I want to look at three passages in the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, turn to Acts 1. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, and then I'm going to draw a whole bunch of lessons. But first, the book of Acts. Turn to Acts 1, and notice what the disciples do in prioritizing politics or witness. And then notice what Jesus prioritized. Acts 1, 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they prioritizing? They want the restoration of Israel. God's kingdom on earth now. That's what they're looking for. Is now the time? We're going to do this. Pick up the store, restore the kingdom to Israel. That's their priority. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Stop worrying about the times. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Looking at this one text, a one particular commentator says you have Acts 1.6, Christians and Acts 1-8 Christians, those who are looking to build the kingdom on earth now and those who are looking to witness to a kingdom to come. We know what Jesus is. Maybe, maybe though, Jesus and the apostles lived in a, you know, a relatively good time for the church. Maybe they weren't desperate times for the church at that point. Could, could that they didn't realize. They, they weren't thinking of our context, which is way worse. Turn to a second text, Acts 19. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul shows up in Ephesus. What does he do? Verse 8. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Okay, so Paul is clearly an Acts 1-8 Christian. He prioritizes witnessing to the kingdom of heaven. Yet notice, interestingly, his doing so does make a political and economic impact. Look down at verses 23 and following. So he's still in Ephesus, and we learn about this Demetrius. He's a silversmith who fashions silver shrines for the goddess Artemis. And Demetrius is noticing that Paul's preaching is hurting business. And so he gathers his fellow craftsmen together, and he complains about Paul. Look at verse 26. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Okay, so he's got religious concerns. Artemis is a god, and he's saying she's not a god. He's got religious concerns. But his concerns go a little deeper, I think. The temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay. 
but, but as I said, it goes deeper. Verse 27, this trade of ours may come into disrepute. It's hurting the bottom line. Isn't that what he's saying? And then at the conclusion of Demetrius' speech, you see there, a riot ensues. Now, Demetrius, honestly, he has a point, doesn't he? The life of faithful, gospel-preaching Christians will disrupt false worship. And those disruptions will domino effect, unfold economically, politically. So if we could do the surveys, for instance, would we find that the presence of Christians in a society negatively impact, impacted the porn industry, the business of abortion doctors, uh, incidents of racialized violence. If we could separate, let's say, separate all the nominal Christians out somehow and just truly had the born-again Christians and were to survey their impact on a society, would we see all of those things going down? Honestly, friends, I think we would. I believe it would make a difference. You have, in a sense, the whole history of the Roman Empire and what happened to it and the way it treated women and, 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 and children and sexuality to, to, to prove the point. Christianity, real Christianity, does make an impact. But what is Paul prioritizing here? His witness or his politics? Which serves which? Christianity should care about politics. It should care about economics. But are you an Acts 1-6 or an Acts 1-8 Christian? Look to a third text. Chapter 24, verse 5. The Jewish high priest, interestingly, is taking Demetrius' side. He's accusing. Look at chapter 24, verse 5. This Paul is stirring up riots. Now flip one more chapter to chapter 25, verse 25. Here we have the Roman governor Festus surveying all the evidence, considering the charges against Paul. And what does Festus conclude? He says, I found that he's done nothing deserving death. In other words, Paul, by Rome's lights, from Rome's perspective, is not an insurrectionist. He's just some religious dude. He's not... He's not here to overthrow the Roman state. We're not, that's not his goal. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to hold Demetrius's perspective and Festus's perspective in, in both hands and, and look at both at the same time. Yes, Christianity and churches are a threat to the stability of the Roman and American way of life. But no, Festus, we're not out to provoke civil strife. Yes, Demetrius, the presence of Christians in a society will prove to be bad for businesses based on wickedness and idolatry. But no, Festus, mobs of church members will not tear down temples, shops, networks, capital buildings. Yes, Demetrius, churches will challenge the idols and false gods that prop up every government, every marketplace, whether the gods of the Roman Empire or the gods of the secular West. But no, Festus, they're not trying to overthrow the state. I think what we have here is Paul's paradigm for the relationship between political outcomes and witness. Politics follows witness. Politics serves witness. It's under witness because the primary concern is always for Paul making disciple, not changing the nation as such or the culture as such. That said, disciples once made will impact the culture. Christians and churches will make a political and economic impact. This, this is not an either-or, political impact or witness. I'm not giving you an either-or, but I am giving you a priority. I am giving you an asymmetry. Now, friends, we could even say Christians will always pose a political threat. 
But it's not the threat of an invader or an insurrectionist. It's the threat more of a virus or termites. We chew away at the idols which hold up a marketplace or hold up a government until as all these Christians chewing, chewing away at the idol, it collapses along with the government or the marketplace resting on it. The Chinese Communist Party is right to be afraid of Christians. Not directly. Not in the way they think. No, they're not stocking up guns. But they are saying Jesus is Lord. And there is a God in the heavens. And if enough people believe that, yeah, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't have a future there. We are a kind of political threat. When Christians say Jesus is Lord and therefore we won't worship Artemis or buy things that support the Artemis industry, we put jobs in the Artemis industry at stake. The lobbyists hired by that industry will oppose us, followed by the congressmen with Artemis factories in their districts. Have you ever noticed how corporate America, fearing the loss of market share, has rushed to support the LGBT agenda and threaten the jobs of anybody who stands in the way? It's finally about worship, but that worship unfolding politically, economically. Yet again, our primary goal is not to be Acts 1-6 Christians. Our primary goal is to be Acts 1-8 Christians. Our primary goal is witness, making disciples, even for those who work in politics, as some of you may do. Our politics should always be in service to our witness. That is to say, politics is always penultimate. Worship and witness are ultimate, and the penultimate always serves the ultimate. Let me give you 12 steps for putting churches into the service, putting our politics as churches into the service of our witness. Uh, the whole conversation really is about putting first things first and second things second. I said 12 steps. Uh, Garrett told me to go for about an hour. I don't think I'm going to get to all 12. I'll probably get to nine, eight or nine, and then I'll just stop. Tell me what time to stop. Okay, let me, let me get at least to eight. All right, step one, if you're taking notes, step one. Uh, make sure, and this is more of a theological point, uh, make sure your earthly citizenship is subordinate to your heavenly citizenship. Just kind of following on everything I've been saying for. Make sure your earthly citizenship is subordinate to your heavenly citizenship. Uh, friends, those of you who are Christians all possess two citizenships simultaneously. You possess an earthly citizenship by natural birth or other natural means, and you possess a heavenly citizenship by supernatural birth. Born again, says Jesus in John 1. You cannot enter the kingdom of God, heavenly kingdom, unless you've been born again by water and the Spirit. So you own a second heavenly citizenship by supernatural means. Think, think of the Apostle Paul explaining to one church, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior. At the same time, Paul didn't hesitate to invoke his Roman citizenship when it served his purposes, his witness purposes. He says, I am, Acts 20, 28, 22, 28, I'm a citizen by birth. So he'll claim that earthly citizenship, but he's doing it in service to a heavenly citizenship. How, how do we compare these two citizenships? Well, as Thomas Hobbes says, heavenly citizenship is real, not metaphorical. That's right. Both kinds of citizenships are literal. They're not just pretty metaphors. Both citizenships consist of membership in a nation under a government, meaning to be a member or a citizen of a nation is to recognize the government as yours and the government recognizes you as theirs. That's what that's where citizenship begins, this mutual recognition between governed and government. And both our earthly and our heavenly citizenship involve that kind of mutual recognition between governed and government. 
Uh, both forms of citizenship impose duties and obligations on us as citizens. Got my duties and obligations as an earthly citizen. Got my duties and obligations as a heavenly citizen. Both citizenships afford protection to me as a citizen. The U.S. government affords me certain protections, and the kingdom of heaven affords me certain protections, right? Okay, what's the difference? Well, our earthly citizenship is written on a register in an earthly office, and our heavenly citizenship, that name, is written on a register in a heavenly office. That earthly citizenship is temporary. That heavenly citizenship is eternal. Which means the earthly citizenship is always subordinate, inferior in rank, and is shaped by, determined by, the heavenly citizenship, which being eternal is superordinate, superior in rank. That's going to pass. This will not. Therefore, this shapes and determines this. Ultimate, penultimate. This needs to be super clear in our minds, friends. This relationship. I have obligations and duties here. I have obligations and duties here. But this is primary, and it shapes that. Everything else we're going to think about politics, that needs to be clear in our minds. Step two. Recognize that the biggest threat to Christians in this whole domain is being co-opted being co-opted. In other words, it's letting the early earthly citizenship take a primacy over the heavenly citizenship. It's, it, it's becoming an Acts 1-6 Christian instead of an Acts 1-8 Christian. <clears throat> Let me put it this way. There, there's several temptations for Christians when they think about politics, at, le at least three. Temptation one, we could call separation. Call it the Jonah option. Don't want to be involved with those nasty Ninevites. I'm heading to Tarshish. And politics is a dirty business. I care about spiritual things. That's not an option for a Christian. Why? If I had a whiteboard here, I'd just write down two words on it. Love and justice. Love your neighbor as yourself by doing justice. That, that's, that's an obligation of my earthly citizenship. So separation is not an option. The Jonah option is not an option for a Christian. That, that's mistake number one. Mistake number two, capitulation. Call this the Judas option. Ah, 32 pieces of silver. Okay. And this is what the German evangelical church did in the 1930s in Germany. They capitulated entirely to the regime, to Hitler. I worry that the three-self church in China today can capitulate to the Chinese Communist Party. That's not an option in which they're telling the church what Bible to read. I don't think that's an option for us either. Now, temptation three, in some sense, is another version of temptation two, but it's a whole lot subtler. It's another version because it's worldliness, but it's subtler because it's in pursuit of a righteous and just cause. Call this the Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane picking up the sword option. That was a just cause, defending Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah, Peter, we're not, that, that's not how we're going to do this. Now think about it for a moment, friends, that the principalities and powers want the church's worship, right? They'll do anything for it. And one of the most common ways for them to do it is to co-opt us with a just and righteous cause. They convince us that the temporary kingdoms of this world are most important, their battles most crucial, their 
threats most to be feared, their promises most to be sought. They distract us with good things that are not finally ultimate things. So we're, we're looking with our physical eyes at an injustice, and we think, rightly, I have to do something. And then we also think, this is the most important thing in the world. And at that moment, Satan says to us, you're right. That is the most important thing in the world. You'd better do something. That is a just cause. Give yourself to that entirely. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Do you realize in that moment, think about what was on offer from from Satan in that moment. All the kingdoms of the world I will give you. Jesus could have snapped his fingers and at that moment had all the perfect abortion laws passed. All the perfect criminal justice laws or immigration laws passed. He could have ended all institutional systemic injustice. He could have immediately restored right marriage and divorce laws. Like that. Perfect political system. I mean, isn't that what was on offer? All the kingdoms of the world I will give to you. And Jesus said, no, he wouldn't be co-opted. And not being co-opted meant all those righteous and just causes finally are secondary, penultimate, not ultimate. Uh, Friends, we can make an idol out of just and righteous causes just as we can make an idol out of any good gift from God. Maybe I'll come back to that later. And just thinking through the history of the Bible, from God's people in the wilderness longing to return to Egypt, to Judah's kings relying on horses and chariots or surrounding nations, to the people of Jerusalem laying down palm branches for Jesus, hoping for their rescue from Rome, to Peter picking up the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, co-optation, being co-opted, has always been one of the greatest threats for God's people. Because we see things with our eyes and it feels urgent. It feels immediate. We've got to do something. And the world, in turn, will always want to give its battles an outsized importance. They'll agree with us. They'll say, this is the most important thing. They'll clamor for our support. And somehow, without fully realizing it, we begin to prioritize nation, party, movement, election, nomination, or some other political cause over the kingdom of Christ. And when that happens, when we are co-opted, the volume, tone, intensity, frequency with which we discuss political things increases. We begin to map out the world in black hats and white hats with our own church wearing the white hats. As if we've forgotten what Jesus said about the plank in your own eye before getting the speck in another's. We forget what Peter said about judgment beginning with the household of God. We even begin to characterize other believers as wearing the black hats. They become the enemy. And in the process, we are co-opted. We become just a branch of this or that party, cause, movement, revolution. Step three. Clarify the mission of the church and then make sure your politics serves that mission. Step three, clarify. Get it clear in your head what the mission of the church is and make sure your politics is in service to that mission. That is to say, be an Acts 1-8 Christian. As I said to you before, when people feel the pressures of political divisions or cultural decline, that's all they want to talk about. That's what we'll post on social media. Now's the time to stand up and fight. Christians on the political right 
declare this is the response into LGBT revolutionaries and threats to political freedom or religious freedom. Christians on the left say the same about racism and structural injustice. And yet that urgency is worth paying attention to no matter where you are or when you live as you consider the topic of the church's mission. The church's mission is to do, what, what do I mean by church's mission? Well, the church's mission is to do what Jesus tells us to do as a church, right? But our convictions about what Jesus calls us to do are often not just shaped by the Bible, they're also shaped by the political and economic challenges that we live inside of and that we feel, those realities that we live inside of feel most urgent. It's inevitable. So if, as a Christian, you're able to open your Bible and find some verse that addresses what you're feeling politically or economically, your temptation is going to be to shape the church's mission around that verse. Do you feel oppressed? Bible opposes oppression, so say the church exists to oppose oppression. Do you worry about decline of morality in a nation? Well, the Bible opposes the decline of morality in a nation, so that you say the church exists to oppose decline of morality in a nation. Do you care about good government, the poor, material blessing, finding purpose for your life, healthy families? Well, the Bible addresses all of these things. So say the church exists primarily for all these things. At least that will be your temptation. Now, friends, no doubt there are times to do the unusual or take stands, yet it's precisely in those contested, culturally divisive, politically tumultuous times where we need to be especially careful lest our churches veer off track. In other words, the temptation to veer grows when strife grows. And so more than anything in such days, we need to double down on reading our Bibles, making sure we're getting our instruction, our mission from the book. Now, I'd love to take an hour with you talking about the mission of the church, but let me sum it up like this. The mission of the whole church is to make disciples. Your mission as an individual church member is to be a disciple. The mission of the church as a whole is to make disciples. Your mission as an individual church member is to be a disciple. Yet the fact that the mission of the church as a whole is to make disciples gives it a kind of priority in being a disciple. It's like a son, mission of the church as a whole, exerting a, a gravitational pull on the whole solar system of your, of your life. Make disciples. That gravitational pull pulls on everything in your life. So, I want to make breakfast for my children. Why? Well, because I want them to eat. But why most of all? Well, I want them to experience the Heavenly Father's love for them. I want them to be disciples. I attend a staff meeting and listen to reports of colleagues that don't naturally interest me, but I work hard to listen. Why? Well, both because I'll be able to better do my job, but also because I want to model Christ's love for people. I want them to grow as disciples. I want to install a, a shower in the, in, next to the spare bedroom in my home's basement. Why? Well, so our guests can conveniently shower with, without coming upstairs awkwardly, Yes, but I also want our home to be a comfortable place for hospitality and love, pointing to Christ's own provision for us. I want guests to my home to become disciples. So all of life, do you see the solar system? But there's a gravitational pull from the Christian's mission of making disciples. Now let's talk about politics. I want a government that builds streets and paves streets and keeps them clean so I can easily drive around, but also so that people can drive to church. I want a government that protects the womb and, and the lives in the womb so that people can live 
and hear the gospel. I want a government that protects the currency so that you can make an honest living. Money is stable. And give to missions. I want a a government that insists on fair lending and housing practices so that you can own a home and offer hospitality to non-Christians. I want a government that protects marriage and the family not by redefining marriage so that husbands and wives can model Christ's love for the church. In other words, friends, I don't want a government that can offer redemption or thinks it can offer redemption, but I do want a government that recognizes that its work is a prerequisite. It's setting the stage for, uh, paving the road for redemption, for the church to do its work of making disciples. Who should you vote for in the next election? Well, the, the, the government that seeks to protect life so that, protect marriage, protect our ability to flourish so that the church can get on with doing its work. This is politics in service of witness. Heavenly citizenship in service of, sorry, earthly citizenship in service of heavenly citizenship, the penultimate in service of the ultimate. And part of getting there is recognizing and clarifying in my mind what is the mission of the church because that impacts how I live Monday to Saturday step four declare the standards by which the nations will be judged declare the standards by which the nations will be judged I'm taking language here from a 1967 article by Carl F.H. Henry he said the church's job is to quote declare the criteria by which nations will ultimately be judged and the divine standards to which man and society must conform if civilization is to endure. A crucial part of putting politics in service of witness is to declare to the kings and the voters of the earth God will bring judgment for wickedness. Uh, Think of John the Baptist rebuking King Herod for taking his brother Philip's wife. Uh, think of the psalmist who says, Now therefore, O Psalm 2, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the Son, capital S, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Kings submit to Jesus. That's what the psalmist says. And he's speaking to the kings of the nations. He's speaking to the U.S. Senate and U.S. House and the Supreme Court and your mayor and my mayor and the city council and the school board. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. This is the word of God. God will judge all nations whether they know him or acknowledge him or not. He is their judge. And the fact that he will judge later means he has rule now whether they acknowledge him or not. And so one of our jobs is to declare the standards by which they will be judged. Revelation 6.15, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, will call upon the mountain and say, fall on us for the wrath of the Lamb has come. Kings of the earth, generals, I'd rather be covered by a mountain of stones and rocks than the wrath of the Lamb. Why will kings worry about such judgment? Well, because they didn't rule according to God's standards of righteousness. So a Christian friend of mine who held political office a number of years ago was planning on voting for same-sex marriage. And he said, well, Jonathan, you know, it's a pluralistic society. People don't understand and agree with the Bible, even though we do. We understand what marriage is from the Bible, but they don't. So why would we impose ourselves, our view on them as such? And so I I just turned to Revelation 6, uh, that I just read to you, 6.15, and I I asked him, why why will the kings fear the wrath of the Lamb? Well, in part, because the kings of the earth are doing things like opposing marriage and redefining marriage, even though God defined it this way. 
So why, why would you ever want to put your hand to something that will invoke God's judgment? Keep, keep your hand off that. You don't want to do that. And as you have chance, you may want to warn them too in a way you think they can hear or even if they can't. Now, am I saying that governments or Christians should seek to criminalize all sin, legislate the Bible in its entirety? No, not at all. The government, this is a longer conversation, I would argue the government is a very narrow, protectionist jurisdiction. Uh, Think about a parent's jurisdiction versus a babysitter's jurisdiction. A parent in a child's life has a very broad jurisdiction, right? From, from teaching the child to walk, to wipe himself, to speak, to, to learn his math facts, to worship God, who to marry. It's a broad jurisdiction. The church, too, has a broad jurisdiction. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The, the church has a perfectionist declaring jurisdiction. But what about a babysitter? Keep them out of traffic. Make sure they get fed, get them to bed by eight. Good? It's a narrow lane. Now that babysitter should know they're under God, under the parents who are about to come home. So it's not like whatever they want. No, no, they're under the authority of the parents, but it's still a narrow, narrow lane. So one of the things we need to do is figure out, okay, what is, what is that narrow protectionist lane that God has given to government? Okay, within that lane, though, what are the standards by which the parents are going to judge, God's going to judge? One of a Christian's job is to say, governments of the earth, voters of the earth, okay, within, within this narrow lane, you will be judged. Uh, Peter says your task is to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Okay, well, who's evil, who's good? Who gets to define that? Who's God? It's going to be some God. One of the church's job in putting politics in service of witness is to declare the the standards by which the government within its narrow lane will be judged. Step five, invest our hopes, I'm sorry, invest our political hopes firstly in the church. Invest our political hopes firstly in the church. That's a weird thing to say. What do I mean? Well, church and state are distinct God-given institutions. They must, I would argue, they must remain separate, but every church is political all the way down and all the way through, and every government is a deeply religious battleground of God's. You are representing your God when you step into the public square, whether your God's name is Jesus or Artemis or Allah or sex or the stock market. Everybody is there on behalf of their gods. No one separates their religion and their politics. That's, it's not possible. Not the secularist, Muslim, atheist, Christian. You cannot separate religion and politics. We should separate the institutional authorities of church and state. And what I'm saying is put your political hopes there firstly in the church. Let me give you a taste of what I mean by that with the story of Charles. Charles is a, 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 a he, he, for years he's been a speechwriter here in D.C. Uh, he's written speeches for cabinet members and party chairmen and other D.C. insiders. His work puts him at the very center of American politics. Charles also spends time with Freddie. Freddie, who was homeless, became a member of our church on Capitol Hill when I was there. And after several good years, however, the church discovered that Freddie was stealing money from members to support a drug addiction. And so we, on a very sad day, after pursuing him and him refusing to repent that he was lying and stealing, We removed him from membership in the church, and he became homeless again. And that's when Charles entered the picture. Charles began reading his Bible with Freddie, and little by little, Freddie came to repentance. And I I remember the evening Freddie stood in the pulpit in front of our church and read out, preached out really his confession. I lied to you. I stole from you to support a drug addiction. I had an idol I refused to let let go of, and... uh, it was, it was a beautiful evening. Long story short, the church restored him. It was great. But here's, here's the GDP-sized question I, w- I want you to think about. Which Charles is the political Charles? The speechwriter or the disciple-maker? Right, let, me, let, me, let me put it a different way. 
which Charles concerns himself with welfare policy, housing policy, criminal reform, education? Both. In fact, Charles the speechwriter would say it's Charles the disciple-maker that gives life to and integrity to Charles the speechwriter. It's the same man working, the same king ruling, the same principles of justice and righteousness applying, the same politics in play in both. The speechwriter, the disciple-maker. The local church friends, in other words, is to be a model political community for the world. It's the most political of assemblies because we represent the king of kings, the one with all authority on heaven and on earth, and together we confront and call the nations in light of their kings, their unacknowledged kings' words with the saltiness of our lives. Unlike Charles, however, many Christians in America continue to put their primary political hopes in the nation. So we call it, and have since John Winthrop, a city on a hill. And we write speeches as, as Lincoln's glorious speech, when you walk up the steps and you look to the right and inscribed in marble, the second inaugural address, those final few lines there about achieving and cherishing a just and lasting peace amongst ourselves and with all nations. What a glorious phrase. Achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Friends, where will we first achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace with ourselves and with all nations? It's not the church who's commanded to go all nations. Who's the city on the hill? It's not America. It's the church. That's where it begins. And that's what we need to look to. And that's why my own church cares about welfare policy. So when church member Jane found herself homeless, we tried to place her in safe housing. Due to various mental difficulties, she refused the help and went to sleep in a park instead. And so Luther, concerned about, concerned about her welfare, went down and slept on a nearby bench. We care about tax policy. Carlos, who spends his working days explaining to Congress, U.S. Congress, the implications of various, um, <clears throat> new, various tax implications of new legislation, has spent many of his evenings helping a family in crisis in the church with their taxes. He's, he's worked with their creditors and collection agencies because of their uncontrolled debt. We care about tax policy. Real politics begins not with our political opinions, but with our everyday decisions. Not with public advocacy, but with your personal affections. Who's the Lord you're following? Not all by your lonesome, but with the people. It's inside the church where Christian politics becomes complicated and authentic and credible, not ideologically enslaved, real. Step six. If we invest our hopes first in the church, step six, we must learn to be before we do. So my church, I trust perhaps like your church, is filled with people who move to D.C. wanting to make a difference by working in various spheres of government, and, and their work matters. Their work is important. I'm grateful for their work. But as one of their elders, what I find myself having to say to them from time to time is don't tell me you're interested in politics out there if you're not living a just and righteous life in here. What would you think of the person out on the lecture parenting circuit saying, here's how you raise your kids, but then you neglect your own kids at home? Friends, this is why we must be before we do. Be in here before we do out there. We work to be a transformed nation before we seek to transform the nation. We work to redeem this culture before we go out and talk about redeeming culture. Paul asked the Jews of his day, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? I got a few questions. You who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality with visitors to your church who are nationally or ethnically different than you? You who speak against abortion, do you embrace the single mothers in your church and encourage adoption? You who talk about welfare reform, do you give to the needy? Are you quick to give to others in your church? 
you who are concerned about the economy and the job market, do you, do you obey your boss with a sincere heart? Not as a people pleaser, but as you would obey Christ? So your company would be strong? You who share your political opinions on social media, do you gladly share the Lord's Supper with brothers and sisters in the church who disagree with you? When I say we must be before we do, I, must, we, I mean we must live out justice and righteousness and love in our life together. Then we can come into the nation a vision of righteousness and justice and love. Step seven. Enter the public square as ambassadors and principled pragmatists. Enter the public square as ambassadors and principled pragmatists. Okay, so people see the culture in decline. They say we need to withdraw. Others say it's in decline and we need to dominate. Our task is neither to withdraw or dominate. Rather, our task is to, single word, represent. Represent. King Jesus, whether they're for us or against us. We're there declaring to the nations the standards by which they will judge, but seeking to represent King Jesus more than anything. That is a politics in service of witness. What kind of arguments do we make? Well, we, we make pragmatic arguments. We make the arguments it'll take to win the vote, win the debate, win the, win the election, win, win the, the jury trial. We're not there to lose. We're there to seek justice. So seek to win Use pragmatic arguments as you can, but you're doing it in principled ways and for principled purposes. Step eight. When pursuing political outcomes, always be mindful of your witness. That's kind of summing it up, right? When pursuing political outcomes, always be mindful of your witness. This speaks to our tone, our posture, our alliances, everything we do in the public square in pursuit of political outcomes. Now, by saying this, I don't mean we can always keep our hands clean and won't have to pick the lesser of two evils. Churchill built an alliance with Stalin, who was terrible, to oppose Hitler. He got his hands a little dirty. I don't mean to say we shouldn't or we should pursue political outcomes that will prove popular. Not drawing fair critique. I, I don't mean to say Christians won't disagree with one another about which decisions compromise our integrity and our witness. We, we will disagree. The political domain necessarily is a domain of pragmatic decision-making, and Christians are going to disagree about which alliances and which stances are acceptable and beyond the pale. Okay, we need to leave some room for disagreement, but make no mistake, we can wrongly compromise our integrity and our witness while pursuing political outcomes. And if you're idealizing those outcomes, you won't be able to see it. If you're putting the penultimate above the ultimate, the secondary above the primary, the earthly citizenship above the heavenly citizenship, you will not be able to judge. Is this an acceptable compromise? You're just going to argue for your position. And we really can compromise our witness in a way that does undermine political outcomes. We compromise it when our actions suggest we care more about protecting our tribe than the public at large. We compromise it when we pursue outcomes in a way that suggests we care more about them than, than we do about people knowing Christ. Now, this step is very hard to get right. How do I know when I'm pursuing a political cause or an outcome in a manner that suggests I'm being worldly-minded instead of heavenly-minded? How do I know, for instance, that my zeal for opposing this or that injustice, say abortion, has become all-important and I've lost sight of the greater goal of making disciples and witness? Honestly, it's hard to answer that question. And to some extent, it depends on each person's heart. But I guess you know when your political cause begins to define everything for you. Who you love, who you hate, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, what you talk about all the time, what consumes you, the discovery you can no longer have a relationship with that person. She's like, oh, I can't be with them without, yeah. Who do you most love? Step nine, and I'll stop here. 
Become an expert in fear and hope. Become an expert in fear and hope. In politically tumultuous times, which Garrett warned us about moving towards 2024, fear runs rampant. People act like cornered dogs who growl and snarl. So they flee to populist voices that speak with certainty and confidence, assuring their listeners that they wear the black hat, white hats while everyone else wears a black hat. Both sides do this. But our message is that there's something we should fear more than existential threats posed by this world. And that is not an existential threat, but an eternal threat of the one who holds the kings of the earth in derision and will smite them with a rod of iron. Back to Psalm 2. Friends, if you want to get your politics right and put it in service of witness, fear God, not man. God told Isaiah to do this even as the Assyrian army was literally on the doorstep of Israel. He says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. We like conspiracies these days, don't we? Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, the armies, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. What is your fear, what is your dread as you move towards 2024? The other side or the Lord of hosts? If it's the other side and not the Lord of hosts, you'll get it wrong. Somehow. You might choose the right thing, but you'll choose it in the wrong way. Or you'll choose the wrong thing. So Christian, do you spend more time calling out the evils of political forces out there or more time helping your church to discern their own misplaced fears? And one of the lessons of the entire Old Testament is that enemies, Israel's greatest enemy was never Egypt, never Assyria, never Babylon. It was always their own hearts. That's the lesson of the Old Testament as a whole. Maybe we should spend less time thinking about being culture warriors and more time being gospel proclaimers. If you wanted to know what steps 10, 11, and 12 are, I'll just tell you, but we won't go into it. Step 10, seek the unity of the church. I talk about being a drama dampener, not an accelerator. I talk about giving the benefit of the doubt. Step 11, recognize what unites a church as a whole and what belongs to the domain of Christian freedom. We could talk about that in the Q&A if you want. Uh, Romans 14 and so forth. And then step 12, I talk a little bit about a burgeoning fundamentalism and authoritarianism. And then step 12, I just sum up by saying keep the ultimate, the ultimate, the penultimate, the penultimate. Um, and it's, it's worth remembering that ancient Rome came and went, Right? The Holy Roman Empire came and went. The Soviet Union came and went. The United States, if the Lord tarries, will come and go. We can have confidence that Jesus wins. So as we fear the Lord of hosts and let him be our dread, we also place our hope in the fact that Jesus will win. And if you don't know that, friend, if you don't have that confidence in you that Jesus died for our sins and rose again in the resurrection, drawing all those who repent and believe to himself into that resurrection life, and that that is our hope, again, you're not going to get your politics right. He must be our fear. He must be our hope. So that that heavenly citizenship shapes our earthly citizenship. Let me pray. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we pray that you would help us to look to you and that we would fear you more than man, that you would be our fear, you would be our dread. And then also, Lord, you would be our hope. 
put our confidence in you, Lord Jesus, in your promises, so that we can then obey everything you commanded as we seek to love our neighbor as ourselves and do justice as you give us each opportunities. In Christ's name, amen.